Good morning. Well, I've preached this to you before, out of the ball diamond, two weeks after having had a mild heart attack, out of breath, but I thought it would be good to, to bring it back to you today. Uh, I think it really pertains to some things that are going on right now with the church body, and I would like to use it to remind you of who we are as a church. So that being said, let's pray together. Let's do that. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for from it we gain wisdom from your spirit. And besides you and the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the only infallible thing that we have in our lives. May the word come from my mouth in truth and in passion and in an order that will not confuse anyone and in a way that will save the lost and properly shepherd the saints who are all in Christ. For it's in his name we do pray. Amen. So, in 1 Peter, starting with chapter 1 and in verse 1, and all the way through chapter 2 and in verse 4, Peter is exhorting us. He tells us who we are as individuals and what we are to do as individuals in the church. But starting with verse 4 today, he shifts and he starts to be telling us who we are and what we are to do as a church body. So starting with verse 1 in 1 Peter, we're exhorted, that is encouraged through the scriptures, into knowing who we are, that we are born-again individuals who have eternal hope. We have eternal hope. We're also exiles. We're exiles from heaven. He mentions right away in the first scriptures that he's relating this letter to exiles from foreign countries who are exiled because of their beliefs, and now they're living in a foreign land. Well, that's who we are to think of ourselves, is that we're exiles from heaven. Now that we're born again, we're set apart from the rest of the unbelieving world. The earth is no longer our home. And then the epistle goes on to tell us that we're a people who must endure our trials who must endure our trials, which were provided for our own sanctification. And also that we are a people of love, love for our God above all things, and love for our neighbors as though they were our own selves. And that we're a people who can and must fight our sinful impulses. Today's message from 1 Peter, I'd like to present the message in a three-pointed outline. It's a message that should answer three questions. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? That is, how does Peter describe Jesus in this epistle? And number two, who are we? That is, how does Peter define the church here in chapter two? Who are we as a church? And then finally, as the church, what are we to do? What is the main function of the church in this passage today? So let's get into today's message, but I'd like to read the text again one more time. So for those of you 
where it turned, I, I think it is page 953 and 54, if you want to use one of the Pew Bibles or if you want to look at the front of the bulletin and follow along with your eyes as I read. Wait a minute. I'm going to have you read with me. Okay, so starting with 2, verse 4, if you'll all focus on that right now, I'll have you read aloud with me. Are you ready? As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Thank you for reading that with me. That was your congregational reading for the day. Some of you caught that. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That is, as you, Veritas, come to him, who is Jesus Christ, as you come to him, this statement is mostly referring to, but definitely not limited to, when you first come to Christ. That is, when you are awakened as a newborn believer, when you first become born again to a living hope, as the scripture says in verse 3. And then Peter goes on to give an analogy of who Christ is. And it's here we begin to answer our first question, that is, who is Jesus Christ according to this epistle? He's a living stone, Peter says. He's the living, resurrected Christ. And though he was crucified, it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him, the scriptures say. Because God the Father, in accordance with his eternal plan, to bring his name glory and reconcile us to himself, raised Jesus from the dead. So he's eternally alive. And then he calls him a stone. He also calls him a rock. He tells us that Jesus is the firm foundation of the church, as we'll discover in just a few moments. I think of a giant boulder that cannot be moved by human hands. Even so, Christ can't be manipulated by man. His plans cannot be changed. 
He will not be moved. So he's a stone. Jesus is the living stone, the resurrected, firm foundation of the church. Peter goes on to say that he was rejected by men. Here Peter's referring to the fact that Jesus came to earth a long time ago as the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of man. But most did not believe that he was who he said he was. So he was rejected over 700 years before Jesus came to earth as our Savior. The prophet Isaiah had this to say of him. He was despised and rejected by men. That is, we hated him. We wouldn't have been any different towards him had we been there so many years ago. He goes on to say, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That is, he was heartbroken. He created us, and yet we rejected him. He was, Isaiah goes on to say, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That is, we didn't hold him in any kind of royal honor, nor even any simple high regard. We wouldn't have even said hello as he passed by on the street if he was claiming to be who he said he was. Isaiah goes on to say, he carried our sorrows. That is, he bore our sins on his body at the cross. I know that most of you know this. And then the scripture goes on to say, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That is, we looked at him as though he was the one being punished for his own sin, though no sin was to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was afflicted. He was constantly persecuted by the leaders of his own choosing. He was mocked and spat upon. I doubt that's happened to many of us, at least yet. He was beaten until the flesh came off of his body on the day that he was crucified. He was nailed to boards, and he was hung up in the air to suffocate in our place as payment for our sins. He was afflicted. We as a race still reject him today. Not his church, but largely speaking, the human race. Those who do not truly believe in him nor love him, that is, which is apparently most of mankind if you look around, do whatever they please, never thinking at all about an eternity apart from your dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom you love. They don't ever even consider him. Nor do they think about his proclaimed coming judgment for all the unbelieving earth. So he was and still is rejected. But Peter goes on to say, but he was chosen and precious. He was God's own son, pure and holy. Living in heaven with God the Father, now glorified. And he'd been selected before the dawn of time as we know it to be the savior of man. So he was chosen. 
Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, and follow along with me as I read. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Whenever we run into the word foreknown and foreknowledge in the Bible, it's most often misread and misunderstood. This does not simply mean that the Father in heaven knows what was going to happen in advance. When God says he knew someone and had foreknowledge of him, it most often in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, means they were chosen. He knew them. Or even as far back as Genesis in chapter 3, and in verses 14 and 15, he was chosen. As God placed a curse on Adam and Eve and upon Satan, the curse that was transferred to all generations of man due to our sin, he promised the chosen coming Christ. Saying to Satan, as he had tempted man to give in to sin, Satan had tempted man, not God tempted man. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it comes, I will put enmity between you and the woman for Eve was the first one to have sinned. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. For those of you who don't know or have never understood that statement about enmity, he's referring to Jesus Christ here. Enmity is a type of war. So if you put enmity upon someone, you're declaring war upon them. And the word here is referring to Jesus Christ. He was going to bring war upon Satan. And he chose his own son to do that on our behalf and for his glory. He was chosen by God the Father before the dawn of time to be the Savior, the living stone. And he was precious. Peter goes on to say, he was precious, precious to the Father. Think of how precious your children are to you. I know I have grandchildren now. I remember my son, he could do no wrong when he was a boy. And uh, I just remember being so close to little children. And I've seen some of you passing babies around this morning. I know how precious your children are to you, and you know how precious they are. And yet they're sinners. You know that you're going to be disappointed by them, and you have been disappointed, those of you who have grown children, and you've disappointed them. Think of how precious your children are to you, and now think about how precious Jesus is to the Father. He never sinned. He never said, no, I don't want that food. I, I want this food. And he didn't cry when he didn't get his own way, because his way was the Father's way. There was no sin in him. He always honored the Father. When he was here on earth, he never held himself equal to the Father. 
When Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He is precious. Or again in Matthew chapter 17 and in verse 5, when Peter was speaking praises to the Lord Jesus after having seen him transfigured on the mountain by God the Father. And then suddenly, the scripture says, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So he was chosen and he was precious but what about us? Who are we? What or who does today's text say that we are? The scripture says, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Here, Peter's using metaphorical analogy to describe who we are, or at least who we're becoming. He's comparing us to God's temple of worship long ago made by human hands, constructed by Solomon under God's own direction with specific instructions. The temple in which the worship of God was to be performed, that is, physically performed. A temple as magnificent as it was, made of precious earthly materials and stones placed one upon the other a temple that could and would be destroyed. And a temple that would be replaced, in fact, by God's new temple, which the scripture today calls a spiritual house. In verse 6 of these passages, he, the Christ, is called the cornerstone, which is in reference to a building block that was used to support the entire foundation of an ancient building. The stone would be placed at the base of and in the corner of and in the rear of a building that was to be constructed, con connecting and supporting adjoining walls, floor, and ceiling. It was the foundational stone of the entire building, just as Jesus Christ is the foundational living stone of the church. So Christ is our foundation, and we, here called living stones, are being built up into his new temple of worship, a spiritual house, the church. It's a much different temple than that was made by human hands. It's a temple, if you will, that's constructed of human souls. And a temple which Christ has built, and a temple that can be never be destroyed. Once you became born again, you became a living stone by which Christ's spiritual house would be built. Look around you, Veritas. God's spiritual house is constructed of your brethren, and by and of and for Jesus Christ himself. The scripture in today's message says we're also to be a holy 
priesthood. That's who we are as a church, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are to be a holy priesthood. What does that mean for us, to be a holy priesthood? Uh, what Peter is actually doing here is he's making yet another Old Testament comparison. Many of you know this, but some don't. In the Old Covenant, in the tribes of Judah, the Jews, priests had been set apart. They'd been set apart from the rest, appointed by God along certain familial lines to be the only ones that would offer up certain physical sacrifices, actual animal sacrifices. On behalf of the people, as an act of worship, yes, but also for the temporary atonement for the people for their sins. Everything had to be done in a specific way and in a specific order in order for the sacrifices to be acceptable to God. He himself, having been the one who had given the directions on how the sacrifices were to be made. And you'll have to go to an Old Testament pro to find out exactly what that was all about. I myself would have to do that. But since the coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one person in Christ is to be thought of as a priest in that way. Since the one true high priest, Christ Jesus, has already come and made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, let's read about Christ Jesus as the true high priest who offered up the ultimate sacrifice himself. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, please, beginning with verse 17. That's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. And you can follow along with your eyes while I read. And here it is concerning Jesus Christ, the true high priest. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So here, Jesus, the faithful high priest, has given his life as his sacrifice, making animal sacrifices no longer necessary. They were a foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God that was to be sacrificed, that was to come. In today's text, Peter says that we, the living stones that make up God's spiritual house, are to be a holy priesthood. That is, we are all priests, it says in the scriptures. That is, set apart to be holy in comparison to unbelievers, set apart for the work of God, set apart by God. Having been made so through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and due to our subsequent belief in that fact. In answering question number three today, as the church, God's spiritual house, what are we to do? That is, what is our main function? The scripture says that we are to make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
That means these sacrifices are only acceptable to God if you're born again, if they proceed from faith. Good deeds, simple good deeds are just good deeds, and God has called them filthy rags in the scriptures if they do not proceed from faith. So I have a question for us. What are our spiritual sacrifices to be as a church? What are they to be? Here are my three prime examples. Number one, from Romans chapter 12 and in verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So our bodies, we must give up our love of sinful pleasures. Lust and the like, and replace them with holy things. Before we were born again, we loved our sin instead of our God. But now we must fight sin, and with God's spirit is our strength. That is what Paul means when he says, we must make no provision for the flesh. If you know the areas in which you fell down before you were born again, stay away from them. This is how we fight our sin, but we can only do it by God's spirit and only through faith. Number two, another example of spiritual sacrifice from Hebrews 13 and 15 to 16, that is chapter 13, verses 15 to 16, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's kind of a twofer, that's a two-in-one sacrifice. First of all, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise from the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is what you're doing this morning. This is your spiritual sacrifice. You're coming together in fellowship, and you're speaking the words of God and Christ to each other, and you're singing them out loud to God and to each other, and you're, you're obtaining fellowship and uh, guidance and counsel from brethren, and you're giving it. I've seen you. I've seen you at work, and you do it well. So that's my second example. Praising God with our mouths and sharing what you have with others. Those are sacrifices. And finally, and this kind of overlaps, uh, finally, number three, and from Philippians 4 and verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That was Paul speaking, and he was on the road until he was imprisoned. He was supplied by the church, totally and completely. I know he was a tent maker. That was to set a good example for the young brethren who would not work, and so they would not become a burden to the church. But here he was being supplied 
by the church. So your money, your time, your provisions, the things you have in your cupboard, in your garage, your offerings to God, these are all wonderful sacrifices. They go to move the ministry forward, and they help to support the needy. And you're so good at it. We've received, not that we needed a monetary help, but we've received gifts from you in my home personally, uh, help recently moving, um, and uh, food. I've seen you take food to others. I've heard of you giving money to others, and I've seen it, and we've participated in that. And for such a small church, you do it so, so well. Keep it up. I'm sure there are other examples, but I think they mostly fall into these three categories. So in short, today's message says we're being built up into God's church, the spiritual house, of which Jesus Christ is the foundational stone in order to bring him as God's spiritual house, the church, the worship that he so rightfully deserves and states we could have only done that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our subsequent belief in him. I'm going to back that up with 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And it all goes back to one simple thing. All things were made for the glory of God, and in this case, especially his spiritual house, the church. I'm going to finish today with the call of the gospel. We don't have to look any further than today's text. Before I quote this to you, let me ask you, are you a living stone? Are you in the faith? Are you part of this or another body of believers that's committed to Christ? Have you experienced that transformation where you've become born again to a living hope, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3? In 1 Peter 2, 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And this final quote from our message today find the most foundational statement uh, about being a believer. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you're an unbeliever and you're listening here today, you've heard us say that the purpose of God's church is to worship God. It's to bring him glory. It's to make spiritual forms of worship that we're calling sacrifices of time, body, and money, and so on. But none of this is possible for you unless this or another message from the gospel opens your heart to Christ. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame means whoever acknowledges that he or she is a sinner from birth and can't be saved from God's wrath as a punishment for your sin, except through the willful character of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
And whoever believes that will not be punished eternally for his or her death. Put to shame here is referring to eternal shame. Because we as Christians are definitely being put to shame now. And we're going to be put to shame more progressively as the years go by. But we're talking about eternal shame here. We're talking about the judgment day in which you face a holy God of heaven who will pour out wrath upon you for your sin if you do not believe in the Christ and that he had to save you. It means to be damned, which is both separation from God for all time, and it does say, burned up in the fires of hell. It's simple truth for every member here. They had to go through hearing this. I remember when I first heard this from Christians when I was uh, at the epitome of my non-Christian person and thinking that they were snobs and that they were judgmental and they were brats. This is my college days. And then the change happened and then that was it. You'll recognize it. Come forth if this gospel message or any other gospel message that you've heard as of late from any preaching person, father, mother, friend from school, has given you that message and you suddenly feel a love for Jesus Christ, you suddenly are convicted that you're a sinner, anything that has brought about a change in your heart since hearing one of his message, come forward and talk to one of his pastors. Don't let another day go by without Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you. We thank you for the message that we, as your spiritual house, are to love you and worship you and offer up spiritual sacrifices. And Lord, we thank you for any unbelievers that are here in this room today, Lord, for we are their friends. We pray that you would save their hearts through this or another gospel message. Father, pray that you would properly shepherd the congregation through these messages and that you will constantly attend to us in building us up as a spiritual house that we might bring your name glory with honor. In the name of Christ, amen. We celebrate.